Hello, this is Mary Christopher, and this is story time. This evening is December the 20th, and we are reading chapter 5 from The Sword in the Stone, which is about King Arthur's early life when he was a young boy growing up in Sir Hector's castle, and his tutor was Merlin, the famous magician. So we are on chapter five. Sir Hector's home was called the Castle of the Forest Sauvage. It was more like a town or a village than any one man's home. And indeed it was the village during times of danger. For this part of the story is one which deals with troubled times. Whenever there was a raid or an invasion by some neighboring tyrant, everybody on the estate hurried into the castle, driving the beasts before them into the courts, and there they remained until the danger was over. The wattle and daub cottages nearly always got burned, and had to be rebuilt afterwards with much profanity. For this reason, it was not worthwhile to have a village church, as it would constantly be having to be replaced. The villagers went to church in the chapel of the castle. They wore their best clothes and trooped up the street with their most respectable gait on Sundays looking with vague and dignified looks in all directions, as if reluctant to disclose their destination. And on weekdays they came to Mass and Vespers in their ordinary clothes, walking much more cheerfully. Everybody went to church in those days and liked it. The Castle of the Forest Sauvage is still standing, and you can see its lovely ruined walls with ivy on them, standing broached to the sun and wind. Some lizards live there now, and the starving sparrows keep warm on winter nights in the ivy, and a barn owl drives, drives it methodically, hovering outside the frightened congregations and beating the ivy with its wings to make them fly out. Most of the curtain wall is down, though you can trace the foundations of the 12 round towers which guarded it. They were round and stuck out from the wall into the moat so that the archers could shoot in all directions and command every part of the wall. Inside the towers, there were circular stairs. These go round and round a central column and this column is pierced with holes for shooting arrows. Even if the enemy had got inside the curtain wall and fought their way into the bottom of the towers, the defenders could retreat up the bends of the stairs and shoot at those who followed them up inside <clears throat> through these slits. The stone part of the drawbridge with its barbican and bartisans of the gatehouse are in good repair. 
These have many ingenious arrangements. Even if enemies got over the wooden bridge, which was pulled up so they, they could not, there was the portcullis weighed with an enormous log, which would squash them flat and pin them down as well. There was a large hidden trap door in the floor of the barbican, which would let them into, into the moat after all. At the other end of the barbican, there was another portcullis so that they could be trapped between the two and annihilated from above. While the barbizons or hanging turrets had holes in their floors through which defenders could dump things on their heads. Finally, inside the gatehouse, there was a neat little hole in the middle of the vaulted ceiling which had painted tracery and bosses. This hole led to the room above <laughs> where there was a big cauldron for boiling lead or oil. So much for the outer defenses. Once you were inside the curtain wall, you found yourself in a kind of wide alleyway, probably full of frightened sheep with another complete castle in front of you. This was the inner shell keep with its eight enormous round towers which still stand. It is lovely to climb the highest of them and to lie there looking out toward the marches from which some of those, these old dangers came with nothing but the sun above you and the little tourists trotting about below quite regardless of arrows and boiling oil. Think for how many centuries that unconquerable tower has withstood. It has changed hands by succession often, by siege once, by treachery twice, but never by assault. On this tower, the, the lookout hoved, from here, he kept the guard over the blue woods towards Wales. His clean old bones lie beneath the floor of the chapel now, so you must keep it for him. If you look down and are not frightened of heights, the Society for the Preservation of This and That have put up some excellent railings to preserve you from tumbling over, you can see the whole anatomy of the inner court laid out beneath you like a map. You can see the chapel, now quite open to its God, and the windows of the great hall with the solar over it. You can see the shafts of the huge chimneys and how cunningly the side flutes were contrived to enter them. The side flues were contrived to enter them and the little private closets now public, and the enormous kitchen. If you, are sens if you are a sensible person, you will spend days there, possibly weeks, working out for yourself by detection, which were the stables, which were the mews, where were the cow buyers, the armory, the lofts, the well, the smithy, <laughs> the kennel, the soldiers' quarters, the priest's room, and my lord's and ladies' chambers.
Then it will all grow about you again. The little people, they were smaller than we are, and it would be a job for most of us to get inside the few bits of their armor and old gloves that remain. We'll hurry about in the sunshine. The sheep will baa as they always did, and perhaps from Wales there will come the foot of the triple feathered arrow, which looks as if it had never moved. This place was, of course, a paradise for a boy to be in. The wart ran about it like a rabbit in its own complicated labyrinth. He knew everything everywhere. All the special smells, good climbs, soft layers, secret hiding places, jumps, slides, nooks, larders, and blisses. For every season, he had the best place, like a cat. And he yelled and ran and fought and upset people and snoozed and daydreamed and pretended he was a knight without stopping. Just now, he was in the kennel. People in those days had rather different ideas about the training of dogs to what we have today. They did it more by love than strictness. Imagine a modern MFH going to bed with his hounds. And yet, Flavius Arinus said it is best of all if they can sleep with a person because it makes them more human and because they rejoice in the company of human beings. Also, if they have had a restless night or been internally upset, you will know of it and will not use them to haunt next day. In Sir Hector's kennel, there was a special boy called the Dog Boy who lived with the hounds day and night. He was a sort of head hound, and it was his business to take them out every day for walks, to pull thorns out of their feet, keep cankers out of their ears, bind the smaller bones that got dislocated, douse them for worms, isolate and nurse them in distemper, arbitrate in their quarrels, and to sleep curled up among them at night. If one more learned quotation may be excused, this is how, later on, the Duke of York was killed at Aincourt, described, who was killed at Aincourt, described such a boy in his master of game. Also, I will teach the child to lead out the hounds twice in the day, in the morning and in the evening, so that the sun be up, especially in winter. Then he should let them run and play long in a meadow in the sun and then comb every hound after the other and wipe them with a great wisp of straw. And this he should do every morning. And then he shall lead them into some fair place where tender grass grows 
as corn and other things, that therewith they may feed themselves as it is medicine for them. Thus, since the boy's heart and his business be with the hounds, the hounds themselves become goodly and kindly and clean, glad and joyful and playful and goodly to all manner of folks, save to the wild beasts to whom they should be fierce, eager, and spiteful. Sir Hector's dog boy was none other than the one who had his nose bitten off by the terrible Watt. Moreover, subjected to stone-throwing by the other village children, he had become more comfortable with animals. He talked to them, not in baby talk like a maiden lady, but correctly in their own growls and barks. They all loved him very much and revered him for taking thorns out of their toes and came to him with their troubles at once. He understood immediately what was wrong and generally he could put it right. It was nice for the dogs to have their God with them in visible form. <clears throat> the wart was fond of the dog boy and thought him very clever to be able to do these things with animals, for he could make them do almost anything just by moving his hands. While the dog boy loved the wart in much the same way as his dogs loved him, and thought the wart was almost holy because he could read and write. They spent much of their time together, rolling about with the dogs in the kennel. The kennel was on the ground floor near the mews with a loft above it so that it should be cool in summer and warm in winter. The hounds were Allants, gaze hounds, limers, and breeches. They were called Clumsy, Trowner, Phoebe, Coley, Gerland, Talbot, Luath, Lufra, Apono, Orthos, Bran, Gellert, Bounce, Boy, Lion, Bungie, Toby, and Diamond. The warts own special one was called Cabal. And he happened to be licking Cabal's nose, not the other way about, when Merlin came in and found him. That will come to be regarded as an insanitary habit, said Merlin, though I cannot see it myself. After all, God made the creature's nose just as well as he made your tongue if not better, added the philosopher pensively. The wart did not know what Merlin was talking about, but he liked him to talk. He did not like the grown-ups who talked down to him. But the ones who went on talking in their usual way, leaving him to leap along in their wake, jumping at meetings, guessing, clutching at known words, and chuckling at complicated jokes as they suddenly dawned. 
He had the glee of the porpoise then, pouring and leaping through strange seas. Shall we go out? asked Merlin. I think it is about time we began lessons. The wart's heart sank at this. His tutor had been there a month, and now it was August, but they had done no lessons so far. Now he suddenly remembered that this was what Merlin was for, and he thought with dread of Sumali Localis and the filthy astrolabe. He knew it had to be born, however, and got up obediently enough after giving Caval a last reluctant pat. He thought that it might not be so bad with Merlin, who might be able to make even the old Organon interesting, particularly if he would do some magic. They went into the courtyard, into a sun so burning that the heat of haymaking seemed to have been nothing. It was baking. The thunderclouds, which usually go with hot weather, were there. High columns of cumulus with glaring edges. But there was not going to be any thunder. It was too hot even for that. If only, thought the wart, I did not have to go into a stuffy classroom, but could take off my clothes and swim in the moat. They crossed the courtyard, having almost to take deep breaths before they darted across it as if they were going quickly through an oven. The shade of the gatehouse was cool, but the barbican with its close walls was hottest of all. In one last dash across the desert, they had reached the drawbridge. Could Merlin have guessed what he was thinking and were staring down into the moat? It was the season of water lilies. If Sir Hector had not kept one section free of them for the boys bathing, all the water would have been covered. As it was, about 20 yards on each side of the bridge were cut each year, and one could dive in from the bridge itself. The moat was deep. It was used as a stew so that the inhabitants of the castle could have fish on Fridays. And for this reason, the architects had been careful not to let the drains and sewers run into it. It was stocked with fish every year. I wish I was a fish, said the wart. What sort of fish, asked Merlin. It was almost too hot to think about this, but the wart stared down into the cool amber depths where a school of small perch were aimlessly hanging about. I think I should like to be a perch, he said. They are braver than the silly roach and not quite so slaughterous as the pink are, pike are. Merlin took off his hat, 
raised his staff of lignum vita politely in the air and said slowly, Serum stepan pak ot ot pen din il e yunik tepet sit yab asa is. Immediately, there was a loud blowing of seashells, conches, and so forth, and a stout, jolly-looking gentleman appeared seated on a well-blown-up cloud above the battlements. He had an anchor tattooed on his stomach and a handsome mermaid with Mabel written under her on his chest. He ejected a quid of tobacco, nodded affably to Merlin, and pointed his trident at the wart. The wart found he had no clothes on. He found he had tumbled off the drawbridge, landing with a smack on his side in the water. He found that the moat and the bridge had grown hundreds of times bigger. He knew he was turning into a fish. Oh, Merlin, he cried, please come too. For this once, said a large and solemn tench beside his ear, I will come. But in future, you will have to go by yourself. Education is experience. And the essence of experience is self-reliance. The wart found it difficult to be a new kind of creature. It was no good trying to swim like a human being, for it made him go corkscrew and much too slowly. He did not know how to swim like a fish. Not like that, said the tench in ponderous tones. Put your chin on your left shoulder and do jackknives. Never mind about the fins to begin with. The wart's legs had fused together into his backbone and his feet and toes had become a tail fin. His arms had become two more fins of delicate pink and he had sprouted some more somewhere about his stomach. His head faced over his shoulder so that when he bent in the middle, his toes were moving toward his ear instead of toward his forehead. He was a beautiful olive green with a rather scratchy plate armor all over him and dark bands down his sides. He was not sure which were his sides and which were his back and front. But what now appeared to be his belly had an attractive whitish color while his back was armed with a splendid great fin that could be erected for war and had spikes in it. He did jackknives as the tench directed and found that he was swimming vertically downward into the mud. Use your feet to turn to left or right, said the tench, and spread those fins on your tummy to keep level. You're living in 
two planes now, not one. The wart found he could keep more or less level by altering the inclination of his arm fins and the ones on his stomach. He swam feebly off, enjoying himself very much. Come back, said the tench. You must learn to swim before you can dart. The wart returned to his tutor in a series of zigzags and remarked, I do not seem to keep quite straight. The trouble with you is that you do not swim from the shoulder. You swim as if you were a boy bending at the hips. Try doing your jackknives right from the neck downward and move your body exactly the same amount to the right as you are going to move it to the left. Put your back into it. Wart gave two terrific kicks and vanished altogether into a clump of mare's tail several yards away. That's better, said the tench, now out of sight in the murky olive water. And the wart backed himself out of his tangle with infinite trouble by wriggling his arm fins. He undulated back toward the voice in one terrific shove to show off. Good, said the tench as they collided end to end, but direction is the better part of valor. Try if you can do this one, it added. Without apparent exertion of any kind, it swam off backward under a water lily. Without apparent exertion. But the wart, who was an enterprising learner, had been watching the slightest movement of its fins. He moved his own fins anti-clockwise, gave the tip of his tail a cunning flick, and was lying along the tench. Splendid, said Merlin. Let us go for a little swim. The wart was on even keel now and reasonably able to move about. He had leisure to look at the extraordinary universe into which the tattooed gentleman's trident had plunged him. It was different from the universe to which he had been accustomed. For one thing, the heaven or sky above him was now in a perfect circle. The horizon had closed to this. In order to imagine yourself into the wart's position, you would have to picture a round horizon a few inches about your head instead of the flat horizon which you usually see. Under this horizon of air, you would have to imagine another horizon of underwater, spherical and practically upside down. For the surface of the water acted partly as a mirror to what was below it. It is difficult to imagine. What makes it a great deal more difficult to imagine is that everything which human beings would consider to be above the water level 
was fringed with all the colors of the spectrum. For instance, if you happened to be fishing for the wart, he would have seen you at the rim of the tea saucer, which was the upper air to him, not as one person waving a fishing rod, but as seven people whose outlines were red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet, all waving the same rod whose colors were as varied. In fact, you would have been a rainbow man to him, a beacon of flashing and radiating colors which ran into one another and had rays all about. You would have burned upon the water like Cleopatra in the poem. The next most lovely thing was that the wart had no weight. He was not earthbound anymore and did not have to plod along on a flat surface, pressed down by gravity and the weight of the atmosphere. He could do what men have always wanted to do, that is, fly. There is practically no difference between flying in the water and flying in the air. The best of it was that he did not have to fly in a machine by pulling levers and sitting still, but could do it with his own body. It was like the dreams people have. Just as they were going to swim off on their tour of inspection, a timid young roach appeared from between two waving bottle bushes of mare's tail and hung about, looking pale with agitation. It looked at them with big, apprehensive eyes and evidently wanted something but could not make up its mind. Approach, said Merlin gravely. At this, the roach rushed up like a hen, burst into tears, and began stammering its message. If you, if, if you, please, doctor, stammered the poor creature, gabbling so that they could scarcely understand what it said. We have such a d dreadful case of s something or other in our family, and we, 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 we wondered if you could spare, s spare the time. It's our d d dear mama who, who will swim all the, all the time upside d down, and she d does look so horrible and speak speaks so strange that we re re really thought she ought to have a d d d doctor if it wouldn't, would, wouldn't be too much. Cl Cl Clara says to say so, sir. If you, if you see, see what, what I meant, mean. Here the poor roach began fizzing so much, what with its stammer and its tearful disposition, that it became quite inarticulate and could only stare at Merlin with mournful eyes. Never mind, my little man, said Merlin. There, there, lead me to your dear mamma, and we shall see what we can do. 
They all three swam off into the murk under the drawbridge upon their errand of mercy. Neurotic, these roach, whispered Merlin behind his fin. It is probably a case of nervous hysteria, a matter for a psychologist rather than a physician. The roach's mama was lying on her back, as he had described. She was squinting, had folded her fins on her chest, and every now and then she blew a bubble. All her children were gathered round her in a circle, and every time she blew, they nudged each other and gasped. She had a seraphic smile on her face. Well, 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 said Merlin, putting on his best bedside manner. And how is Mrs. Roach today? He patted the young roaches on the head and advanced with stately motions toward his patients. It should perhaps be mentioned that Merlin was a ponderous, deep-beamed fish of about five pounds, leather-colored, with small scales, adipose in his fins, rather slimy, and having a bright marigold eye, a respectable figure. Mrs. Roach held out a languid fin, sighed emphatically, and said, Ah, doctor, so you've come at last. Hmm, said the physician in his deepest tone. Then he told everybody to close their eyes. The wart peeped and began to swim around the invalid in a slow, stately dance. As he danced, he sang. His song was this. Therapeutic, elephantic, diagnosis, boom. Pancreatic, microstatic, antitoxin, doom. With normal catabolism, gambolism, and babalism, snip, snap, snorum, cut out his abdonorum, dyspepsia, anemia, toxemia, one, two, three, and out goes he with all the fall de ral de ral of the five guinea fee. At the end of his song, he was swimming round his patient so close that he actually touched her stroking his brown, smooth-scaled flanks up, up against her more rattly, pale ones. Perhaps he was healing her with his slime, for all the fishes are said to go to the tench for medicine. Or perhaps it was by touch or massage or hypnotism. In any case, Mrs. Roach suddenly stopped squinting, turned the right way up, and said, Oh, doctor, dear doctor, I feel I could eat a little lobworm now. No lobworm, said Merlin, not for two days. 
I shall give you a prescription for a strong broth of algae every two hours, Mrs. Roach. We must build up your strength, you know. After all, Rome was not built in a day. Then he patted all the little roaches once more, told them to grow up into brave little fish, and swam off with an air of importance into the gloom. As he swam, he puffed his mouth in and out. What did you mean by that about Rome? asked the wart when they were out of earshot. Heaven knows, said Merlin. They swam along, Merlin occasionally advising him to put his back into it when he forgot, and the strange underwater world began to dawn about them, deliciously cool after the heat of the upper air. The great forests of weed were delicately traced, and in them there hung motionless many schools of sticklebacks, learning to do their physical exercises in strict unison. On the word one, they all lay still. At two, they faced about. At three, they all shot together into a cone, whose apex was a bit of something to eat. Water snails slowly ambled about on the stems of the lilies or under their leaves, while fresh water mussels lay on the bottom doing nothing in particular. Their flesh was salmon pink, like a very good strawberry cream ice. The small congregations of perch, it was a strange thing, but all the bigger fish seemed to have hidden themselves, had delicate circulations, so they blushed or grew pale as easily as a lady in a Victorian novel. Only their blush was a deep olive color, and it was the blush of rage. Whenever Merlin and his companions swam past them, they raised their spiky dorsal fins in menace and only lowered them when they saw that Merlin was a tench. The black bars on their sides made them look as if they had been grilled. These also could become darker or lighter. Once the two travelers passed under a swan. The white creature floated above like a zeppelin, all indistinct except what was under the water. The latter part was quite clear and showed that the swan was floating slightly on one side with one leg cocked over its back. Look, said the wart, it is that poor swan with the deformed leg. It can only paddle with one leg and the other side of it is hunched. Nonsense, said the swan snappily, putting its head into the water and giving them a frown with its black eyes. Swans like to rest in this position, and you can keep your fishy sympathy to yourself. So there. It continued to glare at them from up above like a white snake suddenly let down through the ceiling until they were out of sight. 
You swim along, said the tench, as if there was nothing to be afraid of in the world. Don't you see that this place is exactly like the forest, which you had come through to find me? Is it? Look over there. The wart looked and at first saw nothing. Then he saw a small translucent shape hanging motionless near the surface. It was just outside the shadow of a water lily and was evidently enjoying the sun. It was a baby pike, absolutely rigid and probably asleep, and it looked like a pipe stem or a seahorse stretched out flat. It would be a brigand when it grew up. I am taking you to see one of those, said the tench, the emperor of these fish. As a doctor, I have immunity, and I dare say he will respect you as my companion as well. But you had better keep your tail bent in case he is feeling tyrannical. Is he the king of the moat? The wart asked. He is Old Jack, they call him, and some call him Black Peter. But for the most part, they do not mention him by name at all. They just call him Mr. P. You will see what it is to be a king. The wart began to hang behind his conductor a little, and perhaps it was as well that he did for they were almost on top of their destination before he noticed it. When he did see the old despot, he started back in horror, for Mr. P was four feet long, his weight incalculable, the great body shadowy and almost invisible among the stems ended in a face which had been ravaged by all the passions of an absolute monarch, by cruelty, sorrow, age, pride, selfishness, loneliness, and thoughts too strong for individual brains. There he hung or hoved, his vast ironic mouth permanently drawn downward in a kind of melancholy his lean, clean-shaven chops, giving him an American expression like that of Uncle Sam. He was remorseless, disillusioned, logical, predatory, fierce, pitiless. But his great jewel of an eye was that of a stricken deer, large, fearful, sensitive, and full of griefs. He made no movement, but looked upon them with his bitter eye. The wart thought to himself that he did not care for Mr. P. Lord, said Merlin, not paying attention to his nervousness, I have brought a young professor who would learn to profess. To profess what? asked the king of the moat slowly, hardly opening his jaws and speaking through his nose. Power, said the tench, 
Let him speak for himself, said the pike. Please, said the wart, I don't know what I ought to ask. There is nothing, said the monarch, except the power which you pretend to seek, power to grind and power to digest, power to seek and power to find, power to await and power to claim. All power and pitilessness springing from the nape of the neck. Thank you, said the wart quietly. Love is a trick played on us by the forces of evolution. Pleasure is the bait laid down by the same. There is only power. Power is of the individual mind, but the mind's power is not enough. Power of the body decides everything in the end, and only might is right. Now I think it is time you should go away, young master, for I find this conversation uninteresting and exhausting. I think you ought to go away really almost at once, in case my disillusioned mouth should suddenly determine to introduce you to my great gills, which have teeth in them also. Yes, I really think you might be wise to go away this moment. Indeed, I think you ought to put your back into it. And so a long farewell to all my greatness. The wart found himself almost hypnotized by the big words and hardly noticed that the tight mouth was coming closer and closer to him. It came imperceptibly as the lecture distracted his attention, and suddenly it was looming within an inch of his nose. On the last sentence it opened, horrible and vast, the skin stretching ravenously from bone to bone and tooth to tooth. Inside there seemed to be nothing but teeth, sharp teeth like thorns and rows and ridges everywhere, like the nails in laborers' boots, and it was only at the last second that he was able to regain his own will, to pull himself together, to recollect his instructions, and to escape. All those teeth clashed behind him at the tip of his tail as he gave the heartiest jackknife he had ever given. In a second, he was on dry land again, standing beside Merlin on the piping drawbridge, panting in his stuffy clothes. And that is the end of chapter five. And later this week, we will find out what happens next when we read chapter six. Thank you for listening. Have a lovely, lovely week.